This podcast is brought to you by the upcoming Bioceuticals Seminar Series, The New Science of Detoxification with Dr. Chris Shade. Dr. Shade is a globally recognised expert on toxic burden and targeted liposomal delivery systems. He has lectured and trained doctors in the US and internationally on the subject of mercury, heavy metals and the human detoxification system. In this one-day workshop, Dr. Shade will share his deep understanding on how to restore, manage and augment all three phases of detoxification with profound implications for health. At the end of the day, you will have a full understanding of how to provide a personalised, holistic detoxification program that moves away from the hit-and-miss shotgun approach practitioners may have used in the past. For more information visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line all the way from Colorado in the United States is Dr. Chris Shade, who obtained his bachelor degree in pharmacy and then his master's in environmental and aqueous chemistry from Lehigh University of Pennsylvania. He then earned a PhD from the University of Illinois, where he studied the environmental and analytical chemistries of mercury, as well as advanced aquatic chemistry. Now, during his PhD work, Dr. Shade patented analytical technology for mercury speciation analysis and later founded Quicksilver Scientific in order to commercialise this technology. Shortly after starting Quicksilver, Dr. Shade turned his focus to the human aspects of mercury exposure and toxicity and the human detox system. Chris has since developed a specific clinical analytical technique for measuring mercury exposure and a system of products to remove metallic and organic toxins by upregulation of innate detoxification biochemistry, that is, supporting the body's own detoxification systems. His current focus is at the intersection of neuroinflammatory issues, immune dysregulation, toxicity and infection, specifically how to peel away the layers of overlapping dysfunction in the sick individual until you get to the point at which the system writes itself. And I have to say, this is so needed in today's toxic climate. So I welcome you sincerely, Chris Shade. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. It's great to be here and talking with you guys. And I look forward to coming down to Australia. Absolutely. So you'll be speaking at the seminar series that you're going to be delivering to Australian practitioners in November. I can't wait to meet you. We have a lot to talk about. Very good. Now, Chris, you've got an interesting background. Can you take our listeners through your history? Because you come from a highly chemically orientated background, don't you? Well, it depends how far you go back in my life. Uh, I've, uh, it's been kind of a circuitous route, and, uh, and I think getting into the chemistry is what really brought the clarity that I needed. Because uh, if you look back to the PhD, you see a very chemical orientation. But <laughs> you got to know what I did before I even went back for my master's degree. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I got very tired of, of what I was seeing in the science world, especially in environmental chemistry. There was this uh, sort of sense that you could never clean anything up truly. You were just going through the motions. 
And I left school entirely and became uh, an organic farmer up in the Northeast. Hmm. And uh, I was involved in uh, organic agriculture, uh, often called sustainable agriculture. And I did uh, some work with the World Bank organization and actually uh, uh, with the World Bank and with a research group called the Rodale Institute. Uh, And they actually sent me down to Epcot Center, part of Disney World, once to do uh, some public speaking on uh, sustainable soil care. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of where I learned uh, public speaking. And when I came back to school, or when I came back from there, I decided that it would best be best for me to go back into graduate school and really dive deeper into chemistry. Uh, everybody in the agricultural world thought I was too scientific, you know, and and so uh, I ended up going back into environmental chemistry. And so this holistic approach comes from a long time ago, back in in my life. And and at that point, I was you know sort of one of these whole plant type of guys, whole food type of guys, mm-hmm. you, you know, and I, I didn't really have a respect for pure chemistry as I practice it now. Now, I have to ask, can I, can I ask the era of when you went to, to become an organic farmer? It was uh, 1870. Uh, no, wait. No. 1870? Uh, <laughs> Man, you are. <laughs> it was uh, about 1990 or so, 1990, uh, Three. So this is and well. I, uh, I joked that I went I went out of business the year that Whole Foods came into business. So <laughs> I was a little early for the big organic wave out here. Yeah, but but that that call, if you like, to go back to you know trying to eat whole foods was well after the the Silent Spring publication. What was that? The late sixties or early seventies or something? Uh, oh well, yeah. I mean, the the call came uh, after the Silent Spring time into the seventies and. 80s and uh, you know, but I was only born in '69, so I wasn't really you know too active on those fronts <laughs> <No>. in the <laughs> mid '70s. Uh, but you know, there was this movement of you know that simmered for a long time, and then organic agriculture took off as an industry yeah. in more the late '90s and early 2000s. And so, in the early '90s, when I was into it, we were still kind of struggling to get a to get a foothold, but it was becoming a very sophisticated thing at the time. And, uh, it it wasn't just, you know, get away from the evil chemicals. It was about soil ecology and how to cultivate the right organisms in the soil. And then that would take care of the plants. Do you think agriculture has caught up? Caught up? Um, Uh, you mean mainstream agriculture? Yeah. Do you think agriculture is now getting to be, you know, you said more scientific. Um, are they well, understanding? Organic agriculture was becoming more scientific, mm. and the mainstream agriculture, which was overly reductionist scientific, is starting to get more progressive. They're starting to understand sustainability a little bit. They're starting to understand uh, stewardship of the soil, but it's uh, it's a slow move. Uh, for them to come into this fold. Yeah. I tell you, that's a whole another podcast that we could delve into at a later stage. But today I oh, want to get in. <laughs> yeah. Today I want to get into. Nonetheless, that's, that's the sort of counterbalance to what seems to be my very uh, chemically oriented background. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. But, and it, and it, to me, it helps you understand why 
or what you're treating with regards to toxicity in patients. So what do you focus on now and what drove you to specialise in treating toxicity? Oh, i probably just poisoning myself. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what drives you? You know, often it's only in retrospect you can say, yeah, I saw this leads to that, that leads to that. But the, the specific thing that got me here was that uh, when I went back to graduate school for what we call a master's degree mm. up up here, which is your first post-college degree, I was looking at nutrient chemistry and streams being agricultural runoff into streams. And then I went for the PhD, the doctoral degree. And when I went to interview at the University of Illinois, where there was a lot of this kind of uh, stream chemistry going on, I found it really boring what they were doing. But I met this guy named uh, Robert Hudson, who was a, a brilliant modeler. He would take data from all over the world and make global cycling models or models of you know mathematical simulations of how mercury moves through one ecosystem or another. Hmm. And he needed someone to develop better laboratory equipment for getting more data. And uh, he said, hey, can you do this? And in talking to him, I learned more in a couple of minutes than I'd learned in so long from so many other people. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that. And that was what got me into the mercury world. And that was environmental mercury. And I wasn't even paying attention to it, to it myself. I had a mouthful of amalgams. And I remember one day it just hitting me like a ton of bricks. I could just taste, feel, smell this uh, vile you know, runway of uh, of mercury driving down my throat and coating my whole system, and uh, and I said, then I'm gonna go into doing clinical mercury research as soon as I leave school, and that's what I did. I, I left school. I started the company using technology that we patented at the University of Illinois, and I mm. used it first for environmental chemistry, and then went over into doing clinical mercury chemistry, meaning measuring it in people. The mercury issue, like I've heard that you know, dentists and dental assistants are the highest yeah. sort of um, people who get toxic levels of mercury, but that it's all through the water systems because it just washes out. Is that correct? You mean as far as uh, pollution leaving the dental offices and going into the water? Yeah, amalgams and... Kind of complex. Dentists have this very high exposure to mercury while they're working there, and it's. Uh, I work with dentists all the time. I go to holistic dental shows all the time. It's it's very clear the suffering that they deal with for this. And the progressive holistic dentists are really leading the charge to clean up all of that mercury exposure and protect themselves as a profession. Now, a lot of that then leaves the office. Uh, there's a lot of what are called amalgam separators to catch a lot of it, but there's still a lot of effluent that leaves the office and goes into the waterways. Now, people wonder about mercury exposure from drinking water, but mercury exposure from the water directly to the body is very, very low. Mercury doesn't stay dissolved in the water very easily. But the small amounts that do get into those systems then convert to another form called methylmercury, which move very which moves very rapidly up to the food chain, so that fish that are swimming in the water 
may have one to 10 million times more mercury in them than the water actually contains in concentration. And so the problem is this sort of fertilizing the environment with this soluble mercury and then it building up through the food chain. And do you get an interaction with mercury and other toxic metals like you do with one, you know, um, a pop, a persistent organochlorine um, pesticide, um, sorry, sorry, pollutant? These pops, when you, you have do the, do the different metals uh, synergistically yeah. add to each other's effect? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and that's. That's a real issue. Uh, there's there's many different metals that are synergistic with each other. There's a lot of different research on it, and some people say it's mercury and lead or, or mercury and cadmium. Uh, there's several. There's consensus on several of them being synergistic. Uh, and so, if you have a certain amount of mercury, but you've also got some nickel and some cadmium, it's going to be much worse than any one alone. But one of the interesting things that I lecture about is the effect of copper on all those metals. Mm. Uh, A lot of people, when they're either exposed to a lot of copper or they just have some dysfunctional biochemistry that unfortunately we don't totally understand yet, they get a very high copper level in their body and a low zinc level. And the copper itself can appear neurologically like mercury. It can give you the same kind of neurological symptoms as mercury, but it's also synergistically toxic with every other heavy metal. And so you run into problems where copper excess in the body is adding a synergistic toxicity to low to moderate levels of other metals. And those those metals together may be having some synergistic toxicity. And then you add in some of these persistent organic pollutants some of the chlorinated uh, toxins, uh, they, uh, DDT and the chlorinated bisphenols can often be synergistically toxic, toxic with the metals as well. So you get this toxic soup going together where you've got a lot of synergistic components and things really start getting bad. And then especially when something happens to deplete body's defenses against them, then all of a sudden it's like lighting, uh, you know, lighting a match mm. to a tinderbox and everything starts on fire. So we, we do have a very dangerous scenario now in terms of how many different things that we're exposed to. This is really interesting because it's been um, demonstrated that there's high levels of copper from the pipes in Western Australia, uh, not so much in yeah. the eastern seaboard of Australia, but um, there seems to be a, a huge concern slash over-concern with high copper from exogenous... Um, sources in the eastern seaboard of Australia. But I'm really interested about that the combination with mercury and then you combine that with a, a low zinc. Are you exactly. Saying- and, you know, even when in the history of amalgams, in the, I think it was in the 70s, they switched to a high copper amalgam. And there, with a high copper amalgam, there's one, there's more mercury that comes off the amalgam. Two, you have that copper exposure as well that can work with the amalgam. And uh, according to people who trace that, they see an uptick in toxicity after the introduction of that. But regarding the pipes, uh, you know, it is a, it's a 
it's a very important thing for us to track and figure out. And one of the important questions is whether it's the sourcing like that, where there's higher copper in the water, that's really going to cause problems for someone, or whether it's a combination of that and a change to the biochemistry where they sequester the copper, where they keep a lot of copper inside. Because the people who are real high copper and low zinc, not always clear that it's source bound, uh, that it, it may be a... Uh, biochemical problem. Uh, a lot of people these days talk a lot about methylation and uh, methylfolate metabolism and speculate that uh, poor methylation patterns lead to high copper. But I don't think that we've really figured out exactly how it works. So, yet. But so, we do see clinically that these high copper, low zinc people have a lot of problems. Right. And sometimes they won't have any other metal and they'll look They'll have neurological metal toxic symptomology. So the copper may not be the smoking gun, but the canary showing that there's an issue going, uh, an issue with something else going on in the body. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it becomes a gun, <laughs> but <laughs> it may not be that uh, it was that it may not be that you were exposed to a massive amount of copper. Yeah. Uh, but something is wrong that you're not maintaining copper homeostasis. You're increasing your copper too much, but you're you're pushing out your zinc. And we may find in the end, we may find that this is some sort of problem in the gut microbiome or some uh, creature in a biofilm that's living in our blood vessels and controlling this. You know, it, it, our history of uh, functional and integrative medicine is filled with clinical observations with poor mechanistic uh, description of, you know, why things happened, only to find out later it was something quite different. But uh, we do see, we don't know quite how it gets there, but we see the copper get high and the zinc get low. Yeah. And that that's uh, an issue for problems. I want to start to talk about your specialty, which is mercury, and and how you've differentiated these species of mercury. But first, I'd just like to sort of round off this this area of toxins. So, you know, when do you suspect a real toxic issue versus a nutrient deficiency? Like you mentioned zinc before with um, versus copper, and there's the um, calcium to lead issue, uh, this antagonism, if you like. Um, when, right. Yeah, when do you suspect a nutrient deficiency versus a toxic overload? The toxic overload tends to have more of a, a drag on the system, to, be, to put it most broadly. Uh, there's a fatigue to the system and often a brain fog. Sometimes the neurological profile also in, in, includes some anxiety and uh, and it's not clear. Now, you could do some diagnostics with nutrient levels and you can rule out deficiencies pretty quickly. But most of the time when we're doing diagnostics on nutrient levels, it's for secondary use to make sure that we're supporting the detoxic, uh, the detoxification system mm. as well as we can while they're going through this process. But the, the toxic one has... Uh, it, it's a little... You know, unfortunately, it's a little bit hard to describe, but... But the symptom profile, you've got a number of things holding the system down and maybe dysregulating it, and uh, you just sort of triangulate in that this looks more like a toxicity. And and I think maybe it's that combination 
of the neurological effects with the fatigue and you know maybe some joint issues or hormonal issues, skin issues that uh, make it stand out differently than just a deficiency, which tend to have more isolated symptoms. So let's move on now to your, your specialty, mercury. And I was really surprised to find out the different species of mercury. I thought there was just two, ethyl and methyl. Um, right. What types are there and, and how does this affect the patient presentation and, and indeed treatment? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it affects it quite a bit. So if we look at the landscape of mercury, let's start from the raw metal. So the raw metal is that liquid, silvery stuff that we know. And in fact, hydrargyrum means water silver in uh, Japanese. Uh, Hydrargyrum is the HG. HG, And that means water silver in in Japanese. It's called suijin, which means water silver as well. Or the old uh, European parlance of quicksilver, meaning liquid silver. That's That's the basic metallic form. And that is evaporating. You're looking at uh, this liquid form. It's already melted from a solid form to a liquid form. And above that liquid form is a vapor, uh, just like water in a pool will evaporate. So vapor is coming off of that. And that vapor gets inhaled. It comes off of our amalgams and it gets inhaled and goes into circulation in the body. Now. From there, it can uh, it will be oxidized or turned into inorganic mercury. So when you have dental amalgams or if you're a dentist, you're exposed to mercury vapor, and that is oxidizing in the body or rusting in the body to become inorganic mercury. Mm-hmm. Now, your other organomercurial forms, you've got methylmercury and ethylmercury. Methylmercury is made in the environment, and ethylmercury is made in the lab. Ethylmercury is uh, the main component of thimerosal, which was the uh, preservative in vaccines for years. It's also found in some ophthalmic lotions and a couple other health products. Uh, Methylmercury is the one that's formed in the environment from inorganic mercury. So in the environmental cycle, uh, elemental mercury vapors in the air, it oxidizes to inorganic mercury, then rains down into the environment. And bacteria in the environment will change it from the inorganic mercury or salt form into the methyl mercury. And methyl mercury is an organomercurial that builds up through the food chain. This is the one that builds up in the fish. Mm-hmm. So you're dominantly getting methyl mercury from the fish that you eat. Yep. When you eat that, it goes into your GI tract. Uh, is digested and the proteins, it's contained in the proteins bound to cysteine residues in the proteins. And when you hydrolyze those proteins, you turn that into methylmercury and it'll be bound to a cysteine group. Cysteine is an amino acid. And that methylmercury cysteine complex looks like methionine, another amino acid, and you absorb it through your GI tract at about 95% efficiency. So then that moves through your body and can go in and out of cells, can go across the blood-brain barrier, both in and out, and eventually binds onto some cellular protein and then eventually is recognized by the body, conjugated to glutathione, and moved back out uh, through 
the glutathione system, which takes it out through the liver and into the GI tract. So you've got that elemental form of mercury that is as a liquid, but we are exposed to it really as a vapor that we inhale in, and that becomes inorganic mercury in our body. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the methylmercury coming from fish that distributes in the body. And the different forms will go into different areas and will come out different ways. So, for example, elemental mercury as a vapor can get into the brain while it's still elemental mercury before it oxidizes. But then once it oxidizes to inorganic mercury, if it's in the brain, it gets kind of stuck in there. It's very hard to get out. This is uh, a difficult thing for dentists and dental assistants in that they tend to get a lot of mercury bound up into their brain. Yeah. Now, if it's inorganic mercury in the blood, it can't go through the blood-brain barrier, but it can work on different things uh, down in the body below the blood-brain barrier. Hmm. The The methyl mercury can get into the brain as well, and it can also get out of the brain, or it can go into the brain and then break down to inorganic mercury. So... The methylmercury is slowly decomposing the inorganic mercury as well. And if that happens in the brain, then that's another way that mercury can get kind of lodged into the brain. So it's kind of a complex system of a couple of different forms moving that you're exposed to and then ultimately becoming either inorganic mercury or methylmercury in the body. So, But, but ethylmercury isn't, isn't there. It's not this redox, if you like, between methyl and ethyl in the gut. No, that doesn't happen at all. Ethylmercury only comes from vaccines. Now, when it gets into your body from a vaccine, it can distribute into different organs similarly to the methylmercury, and, but it breaks down very quickly into inorganic mercury. So ethylmercury leaves a lot of inorganic mercury residue in the body. But we're just not exposed to too much of that anymore as it's starting to be taken out of all the vaccines. Yeah. So, the, you know, there's a huge issue. Um, people were pointing the finger at thimerosal, but that doesn't seem right. to be such an issue these days. Is that correct? Well, it's not an issue these days because you're taking it out of the yeah. vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think... You know, the human tendency is to point a finger at one thing is doing everything. And uh, so it's all thimerosal. It's not all thimerosal. And I think thimerosal was a big player in a lot of problems. And fortunately, it's going away. But it wasn't on its own. It was in there with uh, some very strong immune uh, stimulants and the whole process together, uh, I think, caused uh, a lot of bad reactions in in a lot of people, and uh, I'm glad that it's going away. But unfortunately, it's being replaced with aluminum, and uh, (laughs) unfortunately, also the vaccine debate here in the U.S. has become uh, quite a witch hunt recently, and uh, it's a guy who used to work for me just went to graduate school, and he said, if you say anything about vaccines being bad here, they will run you out of graduate school. It's really unfortunate because there's no other drug in the world where they would act like that, like there can be no side effects from this drug. So it's kind of crazy how that debate is all gone. Yeah, the the same thing, um, you know, like you had the, the researcher that was uh, lambasted, di- disproved. I can't remember Andrew his name. Wakefield. Wakefield, that's right. Um, yep. And um, 
you know, that that same. Call it a witch hunt. I, I'm not sure about vaccines. I, I think some of them actually have benefit, but I think... Oh, the, I, I, I th- have no problem. Yes, some of them do, but there's no reason that a kid should get 30 of them. That's and right. And most of the kids that I've seen on the circuit are, <laughs> who are sick, uh, who the parents report that it happened immediately after the vaccines. Notice I say vaccines. They usually went in and they got four or five all in one day. You know, there's a responsible vaccine schedule I don't think is a problem, especially if it's done while the kid is not sick, uh, while there's not something going on for him, and when they are adequately spaced out. Beautifully, beautifully said, Chris. Thank you so much for that. To me, I think the the issue isn't so much vaccination as this load of everything at one time, and particularly, it's now been demonstrated, you shouldn't give certain vaccines while the child is sick. Yeah, exactly. And uh, here in the hospitals, they don't they don't even remotely think of that. I mean, my son had a very acute infection, was in the hospital, and these doctors, every time they'd come in, they'd yell at me for not giving them a vaccine. I said, Look, even if I was going to give it to him, I'm not going to give it to him right now. Are you crazy? He's in the middle of an immune crisis. But, you know, they're uh, they're just nobody's being reasonable about it right now. Mm-hmm. Now, you've developed yeah. a specific range of liposomal nutrients to to help treat, you know, heavy metal toxicity including mercury. Right. But I I guess first we need to get a definition because it, I don't think it's a very well understood term. What does liposomal form of a nutrient mean, and what is it not? Right, and this is you know this is really a new field, at least to get out to the nutraceuticals. Yeah. Uh, it's it's been brewing in the scientific world since the late '60s, where they first uh, discovered it, but it's really reaching a good utilization now. So, what is a liposome? A liposome is like a tiny sphere that looks just like a tiny cell. It looks like a tiny cell because it's made out of the same things that your cell membrane is made out of. So the cell membrane has this phospholipid bilayer and is sort of a a fatty enclosure around which our cell content sit. In a liposome, all you do is use the phospholipids to make this sort of fatty outer sphere around a watery core. And in that watery core, we're going to host some nutrients that are otherwise very difficult to absorb through your GI tract. A great example of that is glutathione. Hmm. If you take pills of glutathione, your peptidases in your stomach will break down this tripeptide, meaning it's made out of three amino acids, and they'll break it into its constituent parts. And you can absorb them, but you can't absorb it as intact glutathione. So we need some way to sneak the glutathione past those enzymes and get it across the GI barrier. And so we make these little spheres that look like little cells, except they're, you know, 100 to 1,000 times smaller than a cell. And we get the glutathione inside of those. And when that happens, they can passively absorb through the mucous membranes without using transport proteins. And they can move through into the lymphatics and then into circulation. But the real, the best way to do the liposome 
is to make them so small that they can passively diffuse right through your oral mucosa, meaning right through the surface of your mouth, so that you take them intraorally and hold on to them, and they pass right into your bloodstream. Because even though the liposome is designed to diffuse across the mucous membranes in the GI tract, they don't do super well with the acids in the stomach mm-hmm. and the bile coming out of the liver. Right. Because the bile is going to start mixing with those phospholipids and changing the nature of those particles. Yep. So if we can get the absorption done in the oral cavity, we can come uh, close to fulfilling what I call the dream of the liposome. Gotcha. And uh, the dream of the liposome was this perfect delivery into the bloodstream and into the cell. And in the original liposomal work with these very big liposomes, that dream just wasn't realized. But now that we're making very small, flexible liposomes that can go right through the oral cavity, we're starting to realize that dream of the liposome. So is is part of that dream uh, to swish the um, the orally given liposomal form around in the mouth to, so you get uh, yeah, buccal absorption? Now, we don't want to swish too much because that starts making us salivate a lot and that washes it off the walls. We want to coat the oral cavity and the whole oral cavity can absorb. Your cheek cells absorb. Uh, you know, under your tongue absorbs. Actually, under your tongue absorbs the best. Okay. So you coat the whole mouth and then let the rest kind of drip down under the tongue and hold that. Uh, you know, for the ADD folk, we say 30 seconds. But if we can get you to do that for <laughs> 60, 90 seconds, yep. maybe two minutes, you'll get the best absorption. Okay. And so you're looking at um, not just getting increased absorption and bypassing any degradation in the stomach and bile, but also um, from buccal absorption, you're, you're sort of bypassing first-pass liver enzymes, correct? Liver detoxification. Exactly. So that's, those are the three things. You got them right there. You got acid, you got bile, and you got the liver in between you and the liposome. And so if you can go with the, with the buccal absorption, the buccal absorption, you'll get that, that high absorption right into the blood very rapidly. In fact, we see when we've been experimenting with B12, we see the levels in the blood rising after four minutes. And if something has to go to the GI tract, you're not going to see that in the blood till uh, sixty, you know, sixty minutes or more. Yeah. What about uh, comparisons? I, forgive me for pressing you, but do you have any data about maybe um, co- uh, comparative absorption or bioavailability, indeed, versus say intramuscular delivery? Well, we haven't. We haven't done anything against intramuscular. We probably should do that. Maybe by the time I come down there, I'll have some. Uh, We've compared it to other, quote, sublingual preparations that are sort of water, ethanol, glycerin, and B12. Uh, And in that case, the rapidity, you know, how fast it comes into the blood is really striking. It didn't, didn't show up in the blood until about 60 minutes later for the other sublingual, meaning it wasn't sublingual. Whereas with ours, we were seeing it in there within, at our first time point, which was four minutes. And by about 20 minutes, you're getting about 60% of our peak dose in, and then it rises out where the rest is sort of drifting in through the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Yep. And you rise to a peak. Uh, 
uh, by 60 minutes. And that peak was about three times higher than the peak that you got from the traditional oral absorption. So you get a very fast rise and then a long time up at a high peak, and the peak is about three times higher. If we were to calculate area under the curve, it would be more than three times because of the fast absorption, probably be five to seven fold higher absorption, total absorption. Wow. And and I think this might belie some of the um, previous marketing that wasn't really, um, the benefits weren't really seen in patients where they said, oh, you know, here's a liposomal nutrient, but let's get, put it into a capsule. You know, if it's going to be degraded in the stomach or by the bile and indeed then by the liver, then you may not get that absorption as good as having a buccal absorption. Oh, the buccal, uh, the buccal absorption mm. is absolutely the best. And here's the deal is you can't put a liposome in a capsule. They're starting to make capsules that handle liquids, but the old capsules like gel caps, yeah, uh, they can only deal with less than 2% water. Right. There's no way to make a liposome without the water. Gotcha. Otherwise, all it is is the raw phospholipid, phospholipid. usually a raw lecithin, mixed with uh, mixed mixed with whatever compound you want. Oh, There's some capsules of a liposomal vitamin C, and if you open them up, all it is is a paste of phospholipid and sodium ascorbate, and you put it into water. It takes forever to disperse, and if you put push them on the phone, they say, well, you know, the the liposomes are really made inside your GI tract. And that's, that's a, that's a pretty cheesy way to go. <laughs> and, uh, that's a, it's, it's just not, it, one, you're not selling liposomes and, uh, it's such an inefficient formation of them in the GI tract. At yeah. That point. But what about and they're so big if they're formed that way, it's just, it's just silly. Yeah, so two things I wanted to get into. First one was taste, um, because obviously you're, you're going to have to deal with the, the taste of a medicine sprayed into your mouth. And the other one was right. the size. You know, if you're going to form them in your GI tract and they're going to be a larger liposome versus these incredibly small liposomes, talk to me about yes. the difference. Well, the when you form them in your GI tract, you're, you're going to be making, you know, 600, 700 nanometer vesicles uh, at best. Maybe they'll be in the thousands. And when we're making them with pharmaceutical grade equipment ahead of time, we're making them in the less than 100 nanometer size. And there's a very linear relationship of absorption to size. Uh, in fact, there was a a paper that was done recently where they used very specific sizes of liposomes. Let me see if I can find those numbers. They were getting, uh, going from just 236 nanometer liposome down to 64 nanometers. They were getting a 34-fold increase in accumulation inside the cells. They were exposing wow. the cells to these different sizes, and the small sizes were just so much better at absorbing uh, those liposomes. Yeah. And and what about the taste issue? How do you deal with the taste issue with patients? Well, you try to make them taste good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah, that's just part of the formulation. Uh, 
We, in our flavor profiles, uh, glycerin is part of our manufacturing and that uh, acts as a sweetener. Uh, it's a very low glycemic index sweetener and we use a lot of uh, natural flavor oils like orange oil and lemon oil. These are essential oils distilled from uh, citrus peels and, and we use those to help flavor it. And uh, they become quite palatable from that. Uh, if you were to take those you know, squeeze the stuff out of the capsules or some of the very pasty gels that are out there. Those are pretty unpalatable. Yeah. Uh, but the sublinguals that we make are, are pretty easy to take. But, but you don't want to have a lolly type thing, do you? I mean, it's still a medicine. You want to have oh, that responsibility. Well, thank you so much because some people are, <laughs> some people are like, uh, you know, why don't you make this taste, you know, like, like some sort of fruit pop or something. Yeah, yeah. And Crazy. I, I don't want to make a liposomal synthetic flavoring. Uh, I'd rather keep those out. We have a big autism contingent in, in our client base. We have a very big chronically ill contingent. And these people are reactive to everything. And so you put a bunch of synthetic uh, flavoring and sweetening, sweetener in there, it's not doing well for them. And so, uh, you know, it's not going to taste like a lollipop. But it's still it's still quite tolerable. So you cre- you've created a, a broad array of liposomal ingredients. Can you take me through some of those that you use? Because one of them is very interesting to me, and that's CBD. Yes, CBD is one of the places where a liposome really shines. the 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 highest use of the liposome is where the Native absorption of the compound, if you just ate it, is very low, mm. and the cost is very high. Mm. And this is the case for CBD. And CBD is one of those things that has this phenomenal promise that is not always borne out because of the difficulty of, of absorption and the high cost. People are trying to get the results that they're seeing in the literature, but taking uh, too small of an amount to get those results. And the results we've been getting with the liposomal CBD are just phenomenal. We're able to get the CBD down to this very, very, uh, usually less than 40 nanometer size that gets a very rapid uptake in the oral cavity. And so many people will take it and go, oh my God, I've never felt CBD before. They say, well, yeah, I was, I knew I was sleeping better, but I never took it and felt it calm down my brain and put me into a less anxious, more relaxed state in a matter of just mere minutes. People taking it for pain. We had a woman who had post-operative pain that she claims was making her suicidal and uh, taking eight pumps of the CBD just totally obliterated the pain for her. And so it's been very, very exciting. And uh, it's been it's been just a phenomenal compound. I mean, I I was not giving the cannabinoids their due in the beginning until I really got in, got my hands into them, and started trying them on difficult conditions and saw the kind of effects that they were having. And then with as we started blending them with other nutraceuticals, other anti-inflammatory nutraceuticals, we're seeing uh, the properties even further enhanced. So it's a very exciting area. 
And I might point out for our listeners that cannabinodiol is from cannabis sativa or different species of cannabis, um, but it is totally unrelated to the illegal tel- uh, Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabidiol, um, which needs exactly. to be heated and, and which is the psychoactive illicit drug. Um, so cannab- cannabinodiol um, has some f- far-ranging but very different effects from the psychoactive um, THC. Yes, its its strongest effects are uh, neurological effects, uh, damping neuroinflammation, uh, blocking. It's a very strong anxiolytic, meaning that it's blocking anxiety by uh, blocking the glutamate receptors and accelerating the or augmenting the GABA receptors, which puts you at ease. And it has incredible anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, that result in its pain-lowering effects. Plus, I forgot on the neurological front, uh, it's excellent data around epilepsy and stopping seizure activity. And so it's been quite a molecule. And the most fascinating thing is in the areas where they're allowed to use medical marijuana so that they can use THC as well, if you bring up the levels of CBD against the THC, meaning uh, when cannabis is bred for high psychoactive activity, it has almost no CBD and high, high amounts of THC. And it has an incredibly strong psychoactive effect, too much so usually, and people can't use it for medical effect. But THC is stronger than CBD on many of the receptors. But then when you add in high amounts of CBD, the CBD actually blocks the psychoactive effect of the THC and redirects the THC into receptors which uh, affect a more therapeutic effect, the anti-inflammatory effect, the anxiolytic effect, the anti-seizure effect. And so in, in areas like Colorado, we're able to make medicines that are incredibly powerful because they are able to use the THC uh, the strength of the THC on the receptors, but use the cannabidiol to block all the psychoactive effects. So that's been a very exciting area of research. And I might point out for our listeners that we'll be investigating more of the phytochemistry into cannabis and the various species of cannabis and their phytochemical components in later podcasts with a guy called Justin Sinclair. And I'd I'd love for you to meet him. I think you guys would get on like a house on fire, Chris. (laughs) Great. I'm sure we will. So, Chris, I do want to talk. I think I've heard his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's an expert, and he really delves into this the phytochemical array of these cannabinoids. Um, Oh, it's amazing how they all blend together and do different things, and the different essential oils that are in there. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, indeed, the cannabinoid system of the body. Um, And endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids. Yes, that's right. And the effects on the immune system, indeed. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's what what I've been talking to the doctors here that use a lot of cannabis medicine. They're finding amazing effects on autoimmune. Uh, they think that's probably its its most stunning effect uh, with the clientele that they see. Mm. But I, I do caution people that we are not um, subscribing to the illicit use of marijuana. 
um, that these are no. medical medical products and used and, and they are quite safe. So I'm going to ask you there, do you see any safety issues, any caveats of use with CBD or indeed the um, liposomal glutathione or other liposomal nutrients that you use? No, you're, you just have to know that you're getting a higher delivery of any of these compounds. And one of the beautiful things here when we're doing a liposome uh, or any of the hybrid lipid nanoparticles that we do that are similar, the only difference being that they might have an oil core instead of a water core. The phospholipids that were used are that we use are therapeutic in their own right. Uh, European biological medicine has a long, long history of phospholipid therapy. These phospholipids are used to rebuild your membranes, not just your cellular membranes, but the membrane structures inside the cell, like the mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus. Those are all just big folded over membranes. Mm. And so we're bringing these nutrients in, getting higher delivery, but we're bringing the way that we're bringing it in is uh, on the backs of a very therapeutic molecule. So we don't see contraindications other than you would with any of these molecules and just be aware that you have a high delivery and you might have to start at lower doses and work your way up uh, because we do get a very, very strong therapeutic response. So you might be used to taking thousands of milligrams of glutathione in capsules and nothing happening, Mm. but when you start taking liposomal glutathione, you might want to start at 100 milligrams of glutathione because we can stimulate a rather rapid detoxification. Right. And obviously you'd combine that with, you know, good healthy levels of fiber, which will bind to that merc- uh, to mercury in the gut and help to um, yeah, eliminate that's a, it. Yeah, that is a big uh, consideration is keeping everything moving through the GI tract when you start mobilizing things out of the cells that have to make their, make their way out through the GI tract. You have to move that all and bind it all in the GI tract while it's going through there. What sort of measurements do you use? Um, when you're taking people through a detox of mercury? Well, uh, obviously we do a lot of mercury measurements and uh, that's, you know, the the dominant thing that we're looking at. Do you use serum? It's very common to measure. Serum or urinary? Oh, well, we have a a patented uh, suite of tests or a panel of testing that we use here uh, called our mercury tri-test, which does whole blood, urine, and hair all together in one panel while separating those different forms of mercury. So in the blood, you have your reservoir, your body burden measurement of the two main forms, the methylmercury and the inorganic mercury. And then in the urine, you have excretion of the inorganic mercury. And in the hair, you have excretion of the organic mercury, the methylmercury. So you have a functional measure of excretion efficiency in the urine and hair when normalized to your body burden measures of the blood. That just gives you a map of how mercury is distributing in the body before you go into the detoxification. The most significant thing that you might find in there is uh, a bad urine to blood ratio, meaning that you have a lot of inorganic mercury in your blood, but it's not making its way into the urine, which was is one of the primary excretion routes for inorganic mercury. So that says that you've got some damage 
in the transport systems in your kidney, specifically in the proximal tubules of the nephrons, and you need to address that during the detoxification. So I've got to ask, let's say somebody has, you know, let's say we're talking about somebody who has a mercury issue and they're, you know, pre-diabetic or diabetic indeed, and they're going to have issues with their microcirculation. What, how do you overcome those issues with excretion through the kidneys? Well, uh, the whole system that we use, because it's so heavily based around phospholipid therapy and antioxidants like lipoic acid, vitamin C, glutathione, will help the microcirculation. Ah. But then there are a couple different supplements that we like to add into it to increase uh, urinary efficiency. Uh, here, as far as what we have available to us here, I use one European spagyric formula called uh, Renalin from Saluna Labs, and we use an Ayurvedic formula called uh, called Rentone from Ayush Herbs. And recently, we've been developing uh, liposomal drainage formulas. Uh, there's one blended one called uh, Dr. Shade's Bitters Number no. 9, which <laughs> has uh, liver drainage herbs as well as kidney drainage herbs, all of which, in conjunction with the uh, antioxidant and phospholipid therapy, are going to increase the efficiency of your kidney excretion. And, and are these herbs in a liposomal form? Yes, they are. Uh, this is our first foray into very complex chemistry in liposomes. We've always done uh, pure compounds or a blend of one or two or three pure compounds. And now we're going into broad herbal extracts. And that is a much more challenging thing to do. And so our uh, liposomal bitters is the first foray into that, and it's been greatly successful. Oh, my goodness. I can, I can, I'm just picturing this, a liposomal bitter sprayed into the mouth, so you're going to get that whole digestive effect plus the absorption of the bitters. Um, oh, it's, it's beautiful. Wow. And, and we really designed it. You know, bitters are big in the cocktail market now, and we really designed this with taste in mind so that it'll be very natural for you to do a bitters and soda, uh, <laughs> you know, an old-fashioned with bitters, a, a bitters digestive or just bitters straight under the tongue. Yeah. Uh, they're very, very good tasting. Ah, I'm so pleased that you're getting into that. Dr. Chris yeah, Shader, yeah. And, you know, we just met a guy. Uh, we started working with an adaptogen company that makes uh, Chinese herbal adaptogens, and we started putting them in liposomal form, and uh, their effects were stunning. I couldn't believe how strong they were that way. Chris Shade, I could talk to you for hours, and I hope to do this at the, uh, the in the seminar series that you're going to be delivering in, to Australian practitioners in November. I understand you're coming out. Is that right? Oh, I am coming out. We will have a good time there. We've got five full-day lectures and lots of product sampling to do. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait to, to hear more about these, uh, these bitters as well as the, uh, the liposomal uh, glutathione and vitamin C that you have as well. Yeah, they're fantastic. You're going to have a lot of fun with them. Dr. Chris Shade, thank you so much for taking us through what you've developed, I think, is a real interesting and different clinical tool for practitioners. This is going to be something quite unique to Australian practitioners. And I thank you for taking us through the issues with mercury, but also other issues um, in the body and therapeutic actions of things like CBD, which I think is going to take Australia by storm and help a lot of patients. 
So thank you so much for joining us today. Excellent. Well, I, I really look forward to bringing all this down there. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the New Science of Detoxification, Advanced Approaches to Phase 1, 2 and 3 Support. For more information, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events.